Well, I, I did hear last week Mike let you in on a little secret, that I am paid by the hour. And I figure since it's not a secret now, I can take advantage of it. I was expecting applause there. Oh, so we've been in a series over the last um, several weeks, um, month of June and now into July, talking about Joseph and these dreams that he has the opportunity to live out every day very real, in a very real way. And we've been dealing with this question of how would someone in my situation respond if they completely trusted God? With all of Joseph's circumstances, with everything that he's gone through, everything that he's experienced, what would it be like to be in Joseph's shoes? What would it be like to experience what he has experienced? And if we were in his place, then how would we respond? And so we've been dealing with this question for ourselves and in our lives and our circumstances and our situations. How would someone in my circumstances, in my situation, respond if they completely trusted God? And it's a really difficult question to ask because I think for most of us, we continually struggle with this idea of who I am. If you think back a little bit in the story to not Joseph's life, but the life of his father. His father finds himself finally at the end of this story here in chapter 46. And God speaks to him, starting in verse 2 of 46. And God spoke to Israel, who is Jacob. He spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he says, here I am. It's this moment where as God calls him and God speaks to him, Jacob responds, here I am. One of the things I think it's important to understand before we truly come to grips with here I am, we have to understand who I am. And for Jacob, this has been a long, long journey. If you remember back in the story early on in his life, he has taken the blessing or the birthright from his brother Esau. And then in the second encounter that we have with Jacob, we find him taking the blessing from his father. And he does so by pretending to be his brother. He goes in with his identity concealed, and he says to his father, here I am, I am Esau, your firstborn. And because of this, it results in this sibling rivalry. And he finds himself having to run from the life that he created for himself. And as he runs from his brother, he goes through this period where he's trying to figure out who he is, where he has this vision of God and he sees what God is doing in this world and God promises he's going to make him into a great nation. And then he has this wrestling match. As he wrestles with this angel, as he wrestles with God through the night, And finally, after wrestling through the night, I want you to listen verse 20 or chapter 27. Sorry, sorry. 
31. I didn't mark the right place. After wrestling all night, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And you find Jacob in this wrestling match trying to figure out who he is. And it seems like right when he comes to terms with who he is, I am Jacob. Here I am. This is me. Right when he comes to terms with who he is, God changes his name. And he says, now that you're good with who you are, now, with your, now that you're okay with who I created you as, I want you to be who I have called you to be. I want you to be the father of a nation. I want you to be the leader of this group of people. And this wrestling match ensues as Jacob tries to figure out who he really is. And my guess is it's a wrestling match that you have struggled through your entire life. Trying to figure out who you really are and what your identity is. I was thinking through my identity this week. I am a husband, a father, a son, a student, a friend, a brother, a neighbor, a preacher, an employee, a boss, an athlete, a coach, a colleague, a thinker, an introvert, a storyteller, a liar, a thief, an idolater. I'm over-competitive, insecure, impure. I'm a hard worker, and I'm lazy. I'm a go-getter, and I am a quitter. I'm a white, male, Texan, American a Rangers fan, a Cowboys fan, once again a reluctant Mavericks fan, a cyclist, a triathlete, a runner, a golfer, a conservative, a Christian, a lover of Jesus. That is who I am. Well, not all the time. See, there's this wrestling match that goes on in my life trying to figure out who I really am, that is me, at least part of the time. And it's, some people love it, and there's other people that probably hate it. There are some people who miss me, and there are probably some people that would never want to see me again. And my guess is, my guess is your identity is very much the same as mine. Maybe there's some different words that you would substitute maybe some things that would identify you but my guess is there's a part of you that you love and there's a part of you that frustrates you there is a part of you that is completely at peace with who you are and there is another part of you that is completely uneasy and unrestful Because you are probably at the same time a truth teller and a liar. Someone who is forgiving and loving and someone who is filled with revenge and anger. And this wrestling match that goes on as we try to determine who we are is one of the most important battles that you fight. Because Before we can truly say, here I am, 
we have to come to grips with who I am. And we get a front row seat to see Joseph wrestle with this question in his own life. Who am I? What is it that will define my life? Who is Joseph? Joseph is a son, a brother, a dreamer, a father, a husband, a favorite son, a nuisance, an obstacle, a slave. He is respected. He is lusted over. He is set up. He is wrongfully accused. He is a prisoner. He is a prince. And he is a savior. And he is all of those and he is none of those. And he has this wrestling match that begins really, I think, at age 17 when he is pulled out of his father's house by his brothers and sold into slavery and finds himself in a foreign land unsure of what tomorrow actually looks like as he begins to wrestle with this identity. And so after this time, as he goes into Potiphar's house as a slave and a servant, He's accused by Potiphar's wife, and he finds himself in prison. He helps the baker and the cupbearer, and then Pharaoh has a dream. And the one person in the kingdom who is able to interpret it is once again Joseph. And Joseph is able to tell Pharaoh what his dream means, and Pharaoh gets this great idea that he's going to take Joseph out of the prison. And he's going to make him prince. He's going to hand him position and power and prominence. And so in verse 41 of chapter 41, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. The people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. It's this journey of prisoner to prince. As Joseph is handed, I think, the greatest temptation you can possibly give someone. He gives him power and prominence and position and says, you're in charge of everything and everyone has to listen to you. Whatever you say goes, you are in charge. And what an incredible weight to be given to you. Because you see in our society today, everywhere you look, people abusing that power. They're given that temptation, and the temptation is to abuse it and use it to hurt people who are below you. Use it for your own good, for your own power, for your own prominence, for your own wealth, for your own position. And in doing so, abusing those who are beneath you. So Joseph is 30. At the time, he becomes the second in command. The journey began 13 years ago at age 17 as he's sold by his brothers. And he finds himself now at age 30. 
after this journey from the palace to the prison, back once again to the palace. Wrestling with who I am. Because some visitors are fixing to show up. And Joseph is going to be forced to deal with what has been done to him. He's going to be forced to determine who he is so that he can move forward with his life. And so there is this period of seven years of abundance where everything is good. And then it says there's about two more years before Joseph's brothers show up. He's 39 years old when his brothers show up on the scene. That means it's been over 20 years since they sold him. Can you imagine what your mind can do with 20 years of planning revenge? Of those conversations with yourself. If I ever see them again, sitting in a prison cell, wrongfully accused, there because your brothers sold you into slavery. Can you imagine the conversations you've had with yourself in those long, sleepless nights in a cell? If I ever see them again. And now, now he has the position, he has the power, he has the prominence, and they are in need. And their father, Jacob, has learned that there is grain in Egypt, and so he talks to the 11 older brothers, or the 11 brothers, and he says, I'm going to send you, but I'm going to keep my youngest Benjamin here. So he sends the 10 to get grain from Joseph. I'm picking up in chapter 42. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all its people. And so Joseph's brothers arrived, and they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers He recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come here to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answer. Your servants have come to buy food, and we are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Honest? Honest? Were you honest when you sold me as a slave and had lunch outside the pit I was trapped in? Were you honest when you went back and told my father that a wild animal had killed me? Are you, you're honest men? No, he said to them. 
you have come to see where our land is unprotected. And they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the son of one man who lives in Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. You're right, he's no more. You're, you're right, he's no more. He's right here. And he's got power, and he's got control, and he can do whatever he wants to you. What would you do? What, what would you do in Joseph's situation when your brothers show back up on the scene? What would you do after 22 years of waiting for God to bring justice to them when all of a sudden they are standing right there before you? How would you respond if you completely trusted God? See, Joseph is wrestling with this question of who am I? And you can see it throughout the story. Who am I? Who am I? I'll tell you who I am. I am the victim. I am the wrongfully accused. I am the one who was hurt. I am the one who has power now. I am the one who can do whatever I want. I'm the one who's seeking revenge. I am the one who is oppressed. I am the one who is hurt. There's a story of an ancient Jewish rabbi named Rabbi Akiva. And one day as he's walking home to his village, he's quoting scripture and the sun is beginning to set and he's talking to himself. And he arrives at this fork in the road, but because he's so focused in on what he's doing, he makes a wrong turn. And as darkness falls over the city, he's surprised by this voice coming from a Roman garrison. Where a soldier atop the watch post calls out to him, Who are you? And what are you doing here? And Rabbi Akiva, startled by the question, simply yells back, What did you say? And the guard once again repeats himself, Who are you? And what are you doing here? And Rabbi Akiva hollers back at the guard at the top of the watchtower. He says, what do they pay you to ask those questions? He says, one denarii. And Rabbi Akiva yells back at him. He says, I will pay you double if you will come to my house every morning and ask me those two questions. Who are you? And what are you doing here? Who are you? And what are you doing here? See, this is Joseph's question. The question that he is forced to answer. Because he is the oppressed. He is the one who was hurt, who was betrayed, who they turned his back on. He is the one who is the victim. Now he's the one in power. 
and he can do whatever he wants. And so he sends the other brothers away, but he keeps Simeon in prison. I'm wondering if it was the same cell that he stayed in. I'm wondering if he had writing on the wall of Joseph counting the number of days in that cell. And then he placed Simeon right there where he was to make him relive. And he sends the other brothers home. And they go to their father and they say, well, we've got to bring back Benjamin with us if Simeon wants to get out. And the father says, I'm not sending. I've already lost Joseph. Now basically Simeon. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too, so no. And after time goes on, he finally agrees because they need food and he sends the brothers back. And Joseph, the whole time, is plotting, it seems, to plan his revenge. How is he going to get even? How is he going to make things look like they should? And then in verse 21, it says this. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. And that is why distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And the whole time, listen, he turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again and had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. He's got them right where he wants them. And you can see this internal wrestling match as he turns away and starts to weep because he knows what he can do. He knows what can happen. And there's this wrestling match of should I do it or should I not? And so Jacob sends the brothers back with Benjamin. And then Joseph has this plan. I'm going to let y'all go now. But he pulls one of the guards aside and he says, I want you to take my silver cup and place it in Benjamin's bag. And so they leave and they, they go and they track down Benjamin and the other boys and they bring them back and they say, someone has taken the silver cup, Joseph. They said, we haven't done that. And they begin to open their sacks, and they find the silver in each sack. They get to the end in Benjamin's sack. And there's Joseph's cup. Joseph set him up. He, he can take revenge. Whatever he wants to do, he can do. See, here's what I know. That you have had brothers somewhere along the way who have hurt you. Who have taken something from you. Who have said something about you. Who have made you the victim. But here's what I also know. At some point, those brothers will show up again. 
And it may not be like it is for Joseph, where they're physically there in the room, but I promise you their memory will. And you're going to be forced to decide in that moment who you are. You're going to be forced in that moment to make a decision about who you're going to be from that point forward. Because you can take revenge, but you can also forgive. You can hold a grudge, but you can also show incredible grace. And I can promise you, if it's in that moment, your inclination is not going to be to forgive. Unless that forgiveness has been formed in you by Christ. Unless that has become the defining aspect and trait of your life, it will not be your first inclination. And it will not be easy. Because everything within you will say, you need to make it right. But this question still looms right over this story. How would you respond if you completely trusted God? If you found yourself in Joseph's shoes, sitting on Joseph's throne, with your brothers showing up in need, how would you respond? So Joseph has this decision of how he will respond as his brothers bow down before him. Just as they were told, as he was told they would do. This was the original dream. One day, One day, your brothers are going to bow down before you. And here it is. There they are. And the memories of the past come flooding back. So, in chapter 45, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Can you imagine the scene unfolding? As there they are, and there you are, in control 
and able to do whatever you want. See, Jacob concealed his identity because he was still trying to figure out who he was. And I think Joseph pretending to not know them is simply the way he is wrestling with this question of who am I? And what am I doing here? Because one day, one day I promise you, those brothers will show back up. One day, you are going to be forced to answer that question. You're, you're going to have to determine in that moment who you are. Because before we can truly say, God, here I am, we have to understand who we are. And it's who we are that we say has died. It's who we are. We say we've given away that we can be formed in the image of Christ. In Philippians, as Paul's talking about this greatness of knowing Christ and how amazing it is, he comes to the end of this little section and he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. We love that part. And to participate in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining the resurrection from the dead. We, we love the idea of rising with Christ a lot more than we like the idea of participating in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Because I don't think Paul wants you to see this as some metaphorical, esoteric idea that will happen someday in the future. I think he means here and now in this world that God is recreating through his people. As he called people in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus talks to them and says, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the question is, in, in that moment, can you really live that out? Can you really live that out? Can we really be a forgiven community of forgiving sinners? Can we really be that forgiving community who is forgiving others as we have been forgiven? In 1915 to 1917, during the height of the Armenian genocide. The Ottoman Turks murdered 1.5 million Armenians. And during the height of this genocide, an officer and his soldiers stormed a house. And on the spot, they shot the mother and father, killing them. And they took the three daughters. The officer gave the youngest two to the soldiers to do with as they pleased. 
The oldest he kept for himself. And after years and years and years of abuse, somehow she was able to escape. And eventually became a nurse. One evening, working under the dim light of an army tent, she sees the face of the officer who killed her parents and thus abused her and her sisters for years. And without exceptional care, the officer would die. And so she gave him exceptional care. A few days later, another nurse who was attending the officer points across the room and says, you see that woman there, that nurse? If she hadn't taken care of you, you would be dead. And as he looks across the room under the dim light, he sees the face of a woman who makes his face go pale. And cold chills begin to go throughout his body. And he calls the nurse over and says, have we met? And she says, yes. And with tears pouring down his face, he simply asked, why didn't you kill me? And her response was simple. It's because I follow the one who said, love your enemies. At the core of our Christian faith is this loving, forgiving, gracious God. And I want us to believe in Jesus not enough just simply as our Savior. But that we would trust and believe Him enough as Savior to actually do what He taught. And to forgive as He forgave. Because at some point, your brothers will show back up. They will be there. And it might not be physically, but their memory will last. And if you haven't decided in that moment, if you haven't been formed by a cross where a Savior says, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing, in that moment, you will not want to forgive. But there is nothing in all of Christianity that embodies what it means to follow Jesus more than those words, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And it is the hardest words you may ever say. But I can promise you this. They are also the most 
free. The reason you know this is because it is what Jesus said to you. Is it possible that we've lost our ability to imagine a world where forgiveness and love and grace still win the day? Do you believe that love is greater than hate? I wonder at times if 9-11 has made us forget that love is greater than hate. And if 19 men armed with box cutters could change the world, what could Christ's church empowered by the Holy Spirit, armed with love and forgiveness, do. Because hope is imagining a world that does not exist. A world that could be. A world that's beautiful beyond anything we imagine. A world formed by love and forgiveness. It's a world that's formed when individuals collectively join together with this idea, with this belief, with this hope that Christ is making all things new. Father, today, Father, we pray that in this place, you will form us as your people, formed by forgiveness. Forgiveness that we have received. Forgiveness that we so, in so many ways, did not deserve. But Father, you gave freely. Father, form us in this new way. Help us to imagine a world that you see, a world where not just the oppressed are healed, but, Father, where the oppressors are healed as well. And, Father, may we be instruments of your peace as we bring your forgiveness to this world. Father, never let us forget that we are forgiven people. And Father, we stand simply in the grace of Jesus. Amen. If you've never found that forgiveness, we do offer you that invitation this morning. Come to the water. Be made new. It's simply that easy.
come and find forgiveness at the cross. If we could pray for you in any way, we would love to do that. We'll have ministry staff, shepherds around this auditorium in the back. Whatever we could do to help you in your journey, come while we stand and sing.